Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai, and I'm thrilled to be here with Jay Dolmage, who is professor of English at the University of Waterloo and founding editor of the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. Uh, Jay is also the author of a book about disability and eugenics called Disabled Upon Arrival, as well as the books Academic Ableism and Disability Rhetoric. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. Um, I feel like you are someone who um, I have been in in like mental conversation with for a long time because we also both work on universal design and we're sort of in similar academic worlds. Um, but as uh, we were just observing before the recording started, this is the first time we've had like a face-to-face -face conversation. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, so let's just get right into it. What's your take on what is happening right now with um, the coronavirus pandemic and disability? Sure. So um, I think there's a lot of really, there's two, there's two things I see happening at the same time. The first is some really scary things. People are dying, obviously. Um, and I think that the there are actually, in some cases, um, eugenic intentions behind some of the policies that are being created. Um, there's also a kind of passive eugenics that's happening um around the ways people value different lives um and at the same time there are affordances that are being made for people so you know um it's this very strange uh situation where um like there's increased access to a lot of things at the same time as there are these unbelievably um uh scary threats uh at the same time. So I don't know, um, I don't know exactly how we proceed, um, except that like every day I'm thinking about those threats and also sort of uh, the other trend that I'm sort of seeing is like people who are in power right now in general, if I can kind of paint with broad strokes, they, they wanted to be in power um, for particular types of reasons. 
They didn't want a crisis like this. They're unbe unbelievably ill-prepared to handle a crisis like this. Um, and they're not looking to the right people for advice about handling a crisis like this. So, and I think most pointedly, they're not looking to disabled people. Um, they're, they're excluding disabled people from these conversations. Um, and so there's a lot of lobbying that needs to be done to get the right people into these rooms or into these conversations or phone calls. I don't think that there's much consideration of, of equity, period, in most of these conversations. And that's at universities, that's a provincial and state government, um, that's within hospitals, um, that's on all levels of decision-making. And so there is an actual opportunity here because le these leaders don't want to be, this is not something they're familiar with or comfortable with, um, to say you need to listen to the right people. And I'll give one kind of more hopeful example, at least in Canada, um, there had been some triage protocols that were leaked, most prominently one in Ontario, that really was saying that disabled people would not be taken care of. Um, there also have been cuts to the kinds of assistive supports that are needed for disabled people just to get the care they need on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not getting support or in-home care. They're not getting translators. They're not getting all kinds of things. So in response to the noise that got made around that, there's now an advisory group that's federal that, that includes a lot of prominent dis disability advocates, self-advocates. That's great. The problem is the decisions aren't really getting made on a federal level, though they're getting made provincially. But I think having that kind of like disabled ombudsperson in every case is so important. Um, because otherwise we're going to default to the ways that the healthcare system generally operates and we know that it's an ableist system and it will be very efficient in kind of carrying that ableism out. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, so you have written a book about the history of disability, immigration, and eugenics. And I wonder if you could just take us back historically a little bit um, and share anything about the history of eugenics and how you know eugenics emerged and what some of the practices were that you think are relevant for sure. uh, analysis in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, there's a part of the book that I, I mean, so in a lot of the historical work around eugenics or even the ways that eugenics gets taught, for instance, in like a North American history class, it really is treated as something that was, that began in Germany, um, that was really implemented there and is a, is a kind of um, artifact of the past. Um, more, more, uh, more truthfully, it was began in North America, um, became really successful as an idea and a, and a series of laws and policies and, and broad implementation in North America. Uh, Nazis based so much of what they did on admiring what Americans were doing with eugenics. Eugenics was this huge research network that was funded and founded by American and Canadian universities. So it borrowed that legitimacy from higher education um, and higher education built itself on eugenic research. Um, and that's a long story to tell. And that's, you know, the book does that. I'm working on another project now that's called 
simply, you know, academic eugenics that does more of that tracing of how, of how, of how woven into the fabric of, of academic research eugenics was, was also very just popular. And the truth is it's really never gone away. I understand why historians want want to believe that it's gone away because we would all like to believe that. Um, but it it transforms it transformed and camouflaged itself as a variety of other things. You know, there's there's a point in the book people sort of believe that if they're willing to admit that American eugenics really happened, then they isolate it to the mid mid part of the 1920s when we had these immigra- anti-immigration laws. But then we also had anti-miscegenation laws and we had, you know, these things sort of spread out. And instead of being based at Ellis Island, a lot of these things began to be based at the American-Mexican border. Um, And, you know, we went from this control in particular locations like Ellis Island to this remote control. They picked up the border and sort of laid it down all across the country. And I think those eugenic ideas um, are still very much structure so much of what we do. And um, it's upsetting to admit that. And it's not something people want to admit, but it's so important right now to name eugenics when we see it. And so, and what we see, what we're seeing right now in um, kind of racism against Asian Americans, it's what we're seeing right now in some of the, the newer stories coming out around race and COVID it's so imbricated in the healthcare system, the idea of triage um, and which bodies are valuable. Um, so these things are eugenics and we have to call them that. Um, if tracing those things to historic policies helps to make that case, then okay. Um, whatever we need to do to make that case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're really highlighting for us too that we may all have been taught that um, the hierarchical ordering of life somehow ended with, you know, the end of World War II or something like that. But so many in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada too, it's not really um, in a geography I know a lot about, so many eugenic policies uh, continued and even escalated um, in the aftermath of World War II and into the present. And, you know, where I live, there are still district attorneys giving, um, you know, young mothers shorter jail sentences in exchange for sterilization and things like that. That's happening in 2020. So um, I'm so glad that you highlight these connections to race, especially uh, to the border, um, also to incarcerated people, uh, to racial histories of redlining. And something that I really love about your book, and my students always love this when we read your book, is this kind of attention to the spatiality of eugenics too. Um, And that includes these like geographic spaces and also architectural spaces, like the the public health sort of processes of vetting people at Ellis Island. Um, And it's been on my mind a lot as we're social distancing too. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, like how eugenics relies on um, putting people in particular spaces and what implications that has for the people themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't really made that connection, but it's, it's so present. So at Ellis Island, they had this thing, and Anne Emanuel Byrne writes about this, but this thing called the six second physical, which was this idea that 
when you came through the processing there, somebody could look at you and within six seconds make a decision about what kind of stock, biological stock you were. And that some people were particularly better at that than others. But also the idea was that once you had been looked at that way, you, once you had been looked at in that way, you learned how to look at others that way. And I think the physical distancing thing is such a profound drama that gets played out over and over again of us giving one another six second physicals um, and using this kind of very limited grammar very limited vocabulary for how we would do that, which of course is necessary to do, to make that, those kinds of snap judgments. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, I wonder if I could sort of ch put that challenge to listeners just to think how have they kind of taken on that role of using that same gaze, that same medical gaze that might have been used on themselves, right? And using that on other people. Um, you know, you, that, that people are now looking around and making judgments of their neighbors about who's, these are sometimes really good, uh, profoundly important judgments about who might be at risk and how to protect those people from risk. But they're also very much often, like you said, a biological hierarchy of like, where does this fit person fit on that hierarchy? And we've never lost that. It's never gone away. But there is something to be said about how profoundly and publicly we're seeing this now and that we have to pause and, and say this is how disabled people have experienced being looked at for their entire lives. And this is how they've been isolated in geographical spaces for their entire lives. And now that puts them at such a, at, at a much greater risk a risk that the general public is only beginning to just kind of in a, in a much smaller way understand. And it's like, then you can't go back. We can't go back. Um, so that if there is some broader shared understanding of how dangerous that kind of way of looking at people is, then we have to understand the, the fact that some people have lived that way their entire lives. Yeah, that's a really important point about institutionalization and um, who has already been forced to social distance or removed from the public under this logic of like social contagion or something like that, which is a very eugenicist idea. Um, and I've been talking to a lot of prison abolitionists lately, too, who are kind of making similar arguments about incarcerated people and, um, you know, really this question of who is able to even social distance right now um, that relies like the ability to choose to do that relies on certain um, structures of like home ownership or housing access um, or um, voting rights or perceptions that you are even a citizen and simultaneously um, i've been reading a bunch of articles about how institutions or places where uh, covid cases are um, happening and just kind of being excused because they the the life contained in those spaces is already so devalued or so excluded from uh, the, the rest of the population yeah. and um, all of those like you said something earlier about kind of like intentional versus unintentional forms of eugenics and it's just so striking to me how in this moment um, it's in part because we are socially distanced but in part because 
we have been conditioned to not uh, perceive and have access to people who are institutionalized that like all of those deaths are erased and and really depoliticized. And I was thinking about that, especially yeah. when um, in Washington state, uh, an early outbreak in the U.S. was in nursing homes and no one was talking about what kind of place a nursing home is and the sorts of violence that happens there, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's so, like, so if I can kind of, like, place a, place a marker down on a couple of those things that we have to pay attention to forever, one of those things is the spaces in which, you know, elderly and disabled people have been relegated to because of defunding, right? But also because of an industry that thrives and profits. Um, so those things are happening at the same time. In the province of Ontario, you know, there are, in Bob, the, big, the big case here is in Bob Cajun where there is a, where there is a, a senior care facility that is just, you know, has been completely decimated in a very small northern community. Well, that's, that's because the Premier of Ontario wants to privatize care, right? And, and has defunded um, care. So, and the, there's no accountability for these private institutions and they are profoundly unhealthy places. And we need to go back and look and examine them all, right? And we need to go back and, and look at the funding decisions that were made just last fall, right? that made it so hard. The truth is it costs less to have home care. This is something my family's been involved in for years since the deinstitutionalization of the biggest, the big provincial institutions in Ontario. And I work with survivors of those institutions, but it costs less to have home care. Very little, but, but there's no avenues for doing it because the contracts have been given to these larger healthcare providers. Another piece of that that's, that's related you know, now people in Canada, I'm not sure what the programs are in the States, but there's a federal program for, for people to kind of replace lost wages right now. And you get to, you can sign up for it and almost anybody can get $2,000 a month. Well, the Ontario Disability Support Program is capped right around 1000 So we need to remember every single person who cashes one of those $2,000 checks needs to know we were telling disabled people they were, their lives were worth half as much when they needed help. And if they knew all the other red tape around that, that, that created situations where those people couldn't seek work if they wanted to because they would invalidate themselves for those supports or for the healthcare they needed. Um, so in any case, I think we have to like put a marker down on that and every single person who cashed one of those checks needs to come back around and say, this can't happen. Right. Every person who, you know, right now is at home in a safe environment needs to understand that people are now trapped in very unsafe environments and their family's not allowed to visit them and they can't leave. And the, the workers who work there are walking out because they're paid so poorly. A lot of them before this were having to work at multiple places to get, make enough money, which is a health, public health concern. Anyway, so. I think, though, there are going to be a series of these things where we really need to lay that marker down and say, this cannot go back to, to this system. We can't go back to this. Now we know. Yeah, 100%. Um, are there specific projects 
um, or efforts that folks who are listening to this or reading the transcript um, can support to be in solidarity with disabled people? Sure. So, and one thing maybe I could put up a couple of the links when we circulate it, but um, one thing just in Canada would be Arch Disability Law. Um, they're the folks who are going to stop some of these things from happening. Because when, when these protocols, for example, the triage protocols come through officially, there are ways to stop them through the courts and, and rapid action will be required to do that. We still have a judicial system. Um, so to me, that is one of the biggest things we can do um, is fund the folks who will bring the, the, these cases. Um, and in Canada, ARCH is just A-R-C-H, disability law. They've been involved for a long time. Um, they're not like a perfect organization or anything like that, but they are, they're the lawyers who are going to do this. And there aren't a lot of lawyers who will. Um, and so maybe I can think and look for some similar, or you could help me find some similar um, venues in, in the States, um, because I think that that's going to be the mechanism through which um, in the short term, we, we stop some of these things from happening. Uh, because I think right now, in terms of visibility and, and the arguments that need to be made, people are doing a very good job. And one of the best things I can say is, if you have the spoons for it, recirculating the information right now is really important. Yeah, it, it is interesting how these disability law organizations are really at the front lines of this right now. And another sort of... Um, space or a set of tactics that I've been talking to folks a lot in these episodes that I'm recording is mutual aid, which is a more grassroots uh, sort of effort and disabled people are leading that um, in many places. Are there any mutual aid projects that yes. you are involved with or driving inspiration from right now? So some of that stuff is being organized in Canada and Ontario um, because the uh, even the kind of federal aid that's getting out is so slow to get out. Um, and so uh, I, I would look to I would so I would look to organizations, local organizations, um, uh, SSAHs, which are special services at home agencies, um, community living. Uh, ex sometimes they're called extend a family. Um, these are, but I think community organizations for community living are the places that support people to live on their own. They also support some things like group homes and places like that. And that's where I think a lot of support is needed. Um, so looking to your local, um, uh, ACL association for community living CACL is the Canadian body, but there's one, I guess I'm speaking only to Canadians right now, but, uh, there's one in your neighborhood. And so being able to help and support them is one way to get, to get resources to people who need them more quickly than the government will. The government is, does not care right now about disabled people. They're getting this money to middle-class taxpayers first. And those people are almost all going to pay the money back in taxes. So it's an unbelievably inefficient way to get resources to people who need them now. So, and so I think my dog's just about to come up and try to sit right beside me. Um, uh, I think your point is a really important one, that mutual aid is really important right now. We can't rely on um, 
uh, state or federal governments to do this. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, any final points that you want to impress on our audience? Your dog is very cute, by the way. <laughs> she finds the most comfortable place to sit wherever she goes. She's an expert. Um, so, yeah, well, I think one the, the main thing that I would say is what I've already said, and sometimes it's worth repeating, but calling these things eugenics when we see them. Um, the truth, there will be a lot of apologies, right? There will be a lot of people saying, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to explore this scenario, or I'm just trying to talk this through or think this through. And that's really, that's how eugenics works. Eugenics is really most powerful as an idea. And it's really contagious as an idea. Um, especially for temporarily able-bodied people because it says you're going to be fine and that there are other people that you can array around you as a kind of force field. Um, and that is just tremendously dangerous and uh, wrong, <laughs> ethically wrong, scientifically or medically wrong. Um, we are really are all in this together. And um, so that's the biggest piece for me is stopping eugenics even as an idea and calling it that um, is is really very important there's like rhetorical work to be done and ideological work to be done um, just as much as there is work to be done that's really tangible and material um, and legal and political thank you so much for that call to action jay um, this is a perfect place for us to wrap up thanks for talking to us it's been great Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.